Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I'm joined by Alan Jaffe, CEO and co-founder of Elios Health a company that integrates and automates the entire behavioral health workflow. We discuss how he and his team have identified and addressed the barriers to receiving behavioral health treatment, why Elios sees quality and administration as inextricably linked, and why he believes products in healthcare must have both a financial and clinical ROI to be viable. Enjoy. Alan Jaffe, CEO and founder of Elios, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, Joe. To start off, can you tell us a bit about Elios and what you all do? Yes, of course. Well, maybe before I'll talk about what we do, I'll just say why we're doing it. So we're operating in the behavioral health space. And for us, all the founders, it's a very personal mission. For me, I have a lot of friends dealing with PTSD. So I'm originally from Israel, and I don't know if you know that, but in Israel, there's a mandatory army service. So I served right. for close to five years in a combat search and rescue unit. And I have a lot of friends dealing with PTSD from that time and a lot of kind of similar story to the two other co-founders. So for us, we began on a mission to really improve the quality of care and be able to help because we've seen a lot of one receiving cares, but not improving for years. And when we started to go down this rabbit hole of quality of care and what of the barriers for that and be able to help, it was really about two main problems. One is so much administration that is going, that is in the way for clinicians, what they have to deal with before they can actually sit in the room with their client and treat them. And second is, how do you measure quality and behavioral health? It's a huge problem. It's a huge question. And our core thesis was when we started this back in March 20, was that in behavioral health, the conversation is the treatment. You actually treat someone by talking to them. So let's try and understand from all these conversations, what's working, what's not working. So today what we do is we are a care ops automation solution for be able to help clinician. And what that means is we run in the background of conversations. And first of all, we streamline all the documentation needs for clinicians. We, you and I just talk Joe and two minutes after this conversation ends, you get your progress note in your EMR. Wow. The second thing that we do is we quantify care. We quantify which type of intervention you're using, what's working, what's not working. And so you as a clinician for the first time have something equivalent to an X-ray scan for be able to help. Mm. You have a data layer that you can rely on to guide you or to make decision based off that data. So we serve mainly be able to help providers across the country. And I know that a lot of that Behavioral health care has transitioned to some virtual engagement over the last two, three years. Do you work both on the virtual side and the in-person side? Is it primarily virtual? How does that engagement structure look like? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because when we started, this was kind of late February, March 2020, right? And no one knew that COVID is coming. So when we started to build the product, it was mainly for in-person because the vast majority of volume was in person. Two months later, out of nowhere, COVID happened and we saw 
visits going from single digit to 90% telehealth. So we need to pivot and change all the product to support telehealth. So today we do both. We do both in-person and telehealth, and it's mainly for outpatient, mainly for community behavioral health centers. And, but we're starting to kind of spread out and do, and do other care settings as well. Got it. What were you seeing out in the marketplace pre-COVID that made you think this was the right time to start this company? I think we saw several tailwinds that were coming together to like the perfect storm. One aspect is the demand for behavioral health was already starting to pick up because I think, um, I can speak for myself, my generation consumes behavioral health and the, the stigma is much lower than, for example, my parents' generation, right? So the demand was there and with COVID, unfortunately, it's only spiked. The supply, on the other hand, is pretty much stable. It's even declining. If you look, for example, in psychiatrists, it's even declining year over year. So there's a gap of four and a half million behavioral health clinicians that we need in the U.S. today. The second thing that was happening is really the matureness of natural language understanding and natural language processing. And we're coming at the, to solve this problem also with kind of a deep technological background, especially our CTO. And NLP was really starting to mature. It was robust enough that we can start work with that to solve a very complex technological problem, which is how do you summarize an unstructured 45 minutes of conversation? And lastly, COVID really helped clinicians introduce new technologies, especially telehealth. So clinicians were much less resistant in a way to adopt new technologies. I think these three main angles really created the perfect stone for us to introduce new, this technology. So I would say two out of the three we saw even before we started, and then the third being COVID really kind of helped us. And what about your own background? You referenced uh, some deep technical experience from your CTO, obviously, but also your own experience with PTSD and military service, et cetera. We talked about what made it the right moment in the market, but what about the right founding team? What was the team to match this, this big challenge? Yeah, it's, it's a great one. So I think we're three co-founders. We all know each other for years, studying together and serving together in the Israeli Air Force. And this was a really personal problem for us. We've seen this from the patient perspective for years. And we've seen our loved ones not improving, right? Um, by the way, at some point, we also acknowledge that we need someone with a deep clinical background to come and, and help build the product, right? So we, we um, hired our chief clinical officer. She's a clinical psychologist from Stanford. But it was, it was we, a great founder market or founder problem fit in a way because we knew the problem. I think something that worked for our advantage, which is not trivial, is we weren't biased on the solution. We weren't right. clinician. We never um, provided treatment to anyone. So we just look at the problem and try to understand what is the best way to solve this problem without any false assumption in mind, without any kind of um, prior understanding of what people tried and failed. I know it's, it's maybe um, challenging to, to see it this way, but it actually helped us. We came fresh. We interviewed something like 300 clinicians when we started. Just, hey, Joe, tell me your daily schedule. What are you doing? Show me your calendar. I mm -hmm. want to know 
what's, what in this calendar is the biggest pain point for you? And for example, the documentation, and then we put everything on the table and documentation, for example, was like number one by far, right? And then when you talk, especially to younger clinicians or clinicians just graduated, they have very little feedback system on mm-hmm. what they do, right? It's very difficult for them to close the loop. So I think we, we really saw this big opportunity to solve quality, but you cannot solve quality without solving administration. And because in behavioral health, the conversation is the treatment, you could do both with one product. I'm not sure you can do that, it, can do that in other verticals in healthcare, but in behavioral health, it was just the perfect match, if you will. I was really struck in doing my own research ahead of this that you are touching both the administrative operational side and also the clinical side. And as you said, that's really rare. Did you find that those were ever at odds as you were developing the product and as you've continued to evolve? I'll give you one example why in the able health, I think you, you have to do it this way. When clinicians write their progress note, they need to specify the type of interventions that they provided, right? And they need to talk about the level of progress that the patient has, that they've seen from the patient. I would say something like 50% of the text in the final progress node is covering these, these topics. So how can you provide value if you can't quantify type of intervention that happened, right? Right. You need to do that. So you need to touch, you need to kind of dip your toes in the clinical water, if you will, in order to solve for that administrative burden, because it, it just goes hand in hand. And we, today we have a full blown clinical team in-house as well, that helps validate the output is correct. We have clinical psychologists that are working side by side with our data scientists and and engineers. So yeah, for us from day one, it was pretty clear that we need to do both. And also we can talk about the go-to-market and sales motion, but it's an uphill battle if you are trying to only sell improvement in quality of care. Mm. Right. For us, we wake up in the morning, we want to do this because, yeah, we, we want to improve quality of care, but you need to provide also the financial ROI if you want to go through the sales cycle, if you want to provide value to your customers. I'd never thought of it that way, but having had to generate some of these notes when I was a medical student, but more when I was a surgeon and a surgeon in training in particular, it was you go through and you meet new patients. and. It's great when you see a patient after somebody on the behavioral health side, a psychiatrist or whomever has seen the patient, because the note is such a a, um, great output from their interaction with them. You get a full history. You get all this insight about the patient that the patient may not have even known to put together that way in that organized fashion at that point. So it's a real privilege to see a patient after that note has been generated because it's a huge help to you as as another clinician, even if you're there for something totally different. So in many ways, the note, the document is the output of that interaction in a way that isn't for many other specialties. So yeah, that's a, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's, they're, they're interconnected in a way that they aren't in other specialties. Yeah. And when you think about this also, be able to have conversations are probably the, the longest conversation that you mm-hmm. will see in healthcare. If you're a primary care doc. The average length of your conversation with your patient is, I don't know, five to 15 minutes. Right. Something like that. In behavioral health, it's 45 to 60 minutes. Right. 
where do you see that in other areas of healthcare? And because of that, the conversation is very rich with data. So you have something like 6,000 words that are being exchanged, but you need to summarize it down to 300 words. And that process, we need to do it seven, eight times a day. It's mentally tough mm -hmm. and it's just tough when you actually need to type all this data, right? right? Not, not to talk about group sessions, right? If you're seeing I don't know, 10 people per group and per group and you're doing four group sessions per day, that's 40 notes you need to submit in 24 hours. Right. What about your metrics or success? Do you have to track them differently on the clinical side versus the operational administrative side? Are they linked? How do you know you're doing a good job on behalf of the clinicians and patients? Yeah, so we're looking at a set of metrics from how, what is the percentage of documentation um, reduction time, right? Um, and by the way, we also commit to at least a 20% reduction time for our clients when we start working with them. It's something that we, because today we have enough confidence and knowledge and reference as a use case, we can actually commit to that to our clients. Sometimes we see up to 40% reduction in documentation time. Wow. Another thing we're looking is we're asking the clinicians to rank our suggestions. Zero to five. The average is four to five. We are looking at how much of the text that the AI is generating, how much of that are they keeping, right? And today, on average, if you look at the notes that clinicians were using Elliot's write, the average is 50% of that note was generated by us. Wow. And from a clinical perspective, we are running randomized control trials. We are looking at symptoms reduction. And in behavioral health, it, you know, it's a big question. What is improvement? What is outcomes? What is improvement? If, for example, my goal as a patient is to get a job. So if I got a job, is that improvement? Although symptoms are the same, we're looking and we can quantify that in the conversation. So it's all linked to the treatment plan of that specific individual. You referenced the, the randomized control trial process before. You, you really have championed the clinical effectiveness based on peer-reviewed research of what you're doing. Why did you make that decision? We're building this company for the long run, right? And, and we think that for too long, we couldn't measure and we couldn't demonstrate quality and be able to help. It's very different from other verticals of healthcare. It's much more obscure in a way, but there are ways to measure quality. And we believe that what we're doing, quantifying care, closing the feedback loop, providing decision support systems, augmented intelligence to clinicians, that actually improved care. And today, on average, we see clinicians who use Elios over time provide more evidence-based treatment by 32%. We quantify the number of interventions that they do per session, and we see that improvement, right? And if you look at the NHS in the UK, mm -hmm. which is probably the best behavioral health program in the world, they managed to hit 50% reduction of symptoms. Mm. There are a lot of studies, but in the US, it's something between 30 to 40%. Got it. Right. So we know that there is a standard, which is 50%. We know we can get there even without technology. And our mission is how can we move from 30% to 70%? Right. right. That seven out of 10 patients will actually improve and not only three out of 10. That's our core mission. That's our vision. And to do that, you need to show outcomes. And so for us, looking at that from a long-term perspective, it's something that I believe the market will appreciate. I believe our customers will appreciate. 
and and this doesn't mean that we cannot serve our clients and move forward because we have that leg in the in the administrative side of things, right? So we're selling. We actually have a relatively fast sales cycle. I think when you compare that to providers, but we're also building this strategic clinical arm for the long term. What about the sales cycle? What does your go-to-market look like? It sounds like you're not stuck in those interminable cycles, or at least not always. What does that look like? Who's your target? Who's your persona at your targets? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. We have decided that we're not going after the large health systems. Also, we need to remember in behavioral health, a lot of that is, is just different. It's curved out. It's most of the, or I would say some of the large health system even do not have a behavioral health practice in-house, right? Right. So our ideal customer profile, certified community behavioral health centers that serve their regional population, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid, some commercial, they have anywhere between 50 to 500, sometimes even 2,000 clinicians. Got it. And we're going after this segment. We're going directly to the C-suite. We have, I think in the last year, two years, we've built a name for ourselves in the industry. We have a lot of thought leaders with our clients. And you actually see a lot of word of mouth now because people talk to each other and people go to the same conferences. So yeah, we, we don't have that kind of free pilot phase. We're not doing that. The average shell cycle is four to five months, uh, which I think is really fast if you compare that to like selling to a health system. I think we've really found our niche and we're doubling down on this niche because also these Providers are the ones at the forefront providing care to the most complex populations, and I believe we can help them. What about integration? Integration and workflows are the two real challenges sometimes, I would say. Certainly on the integration side, not so much in the workflow side. It sounds like you've gotten a good sense of doing that. But how have you approached that, on the integration side at least, and then how do you continue to think about workflow as it relates to generating notes, incorporating these quality insights, that kind of additional knowledge that's coming in for the behavioral health provider? We always tell to our um, team that even if we have the most amazing technology on the planet, if it's not fully integrated into the clinical workflow, the clinicians won't use that, right? So for us, I think it's, Key, the product is not a standalone product. It's embedded on top of the EHR. We can integrate within with any web-based EHR today, actually in a matter of days. And we are integrated into the telehealth or phone system or in per if they're doing in person into that workflow, right? So from a clinician perspective, you don't need to change almost anything in, in what you're doing. You hop on a Zoom call. We're already there. We're capturing the conversation. We're de-identifying it. And from the moment you click leave meeting, in two minutes, you have your note in your EHR based on your templates and your workflows and how you write it in your organization based on your guidelines, right? So yeah, I think, Joe, this is, I can't stress enough how key that is to drive usage and to drive adoption with providers. Any surprises as you've rolled this out over the last few years? Anything that you thought would be, oh, that's totally straightforward. It's a better, a much better way to do it, but it didn't resonate. And also the other side, things that you thought that's not a huge value add out in the space. And then it ended up being a huge lift for your targets. I think when we just started, first of all, we started from the clinical piece, right? And 
and you know, I'm talking about a number of like weeks, but within a number of weeks, we understood that we need that administrative piece as well. well that was kind of one key insight. Another, I think a major milestone was for us is we've built this very scrappy MVP. And we thought, you know, it's too scrappy. <laughs> like people, we see that we not understand what we're doing, but we were always of the belief that you need to have very high friction with the market as soon as possible. That's just mm. who we are as founders. So I've actually sent a cold message on LinkedIn to a person who is very senior and one of the largest people health in the country. And she had seen that and she loved it. And we went on to sign our first pilot work. Right. And that kind of serve as an anchor for our pre-seed round. So I think I was surprised with how much traction you can generate with just cold messaging, cold mm -hmm. emailing, and just being out there and not afraid to show your MVP, not afraid to hear feedback and listen to your customers. You don't need to sit for 10 years in the garage <laughs> and build something today. You need to go out there and just get feedback. Right. And for us, that first initial spark was so um, impactful that I think we were really surprised with just how much we need to do more of that. I think these are two kind of key learnings. And the last thing I would say is that when we, when we talk to clinicians and we first introduced the, the technology and the product, we were actually sure that we would see a lot of resistance. Because clinicians, especially in behavioral health, you know, they work with their notebook. Right. They are, they, not a lot of technology was introduced into behavioral health, except maybe EHRs and now telehealth, that's it. And what we've learned is that it's not about the tech. It's about, are you solving a need for the clinician, right? And that need should be either number one or number two. And when you hit that kind of number one problem for them, then you see the adoption, then they want to talk to you, they want to invest the time, they want to improve it because it really improves their life. So I think these are three main key insights or learning for us that we're surprised by. Do you think that you got to that quicker because of how you vetted the initial idea that you went in, like you said, with a, an outsider's view to say, we have no preconceived notions about where you can deliver value here. We just know that there's ways you can do that. And so you were open to all these solutions that solve those problems versus, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what you described, sometimes we see this in health tech where an undeniably interesting technology essentially is a solution looking for a problem, unfortunately. So do you think that process helped get you there quicker? I'm sure if you think about this for a second, it's, it's a bit out of the box thinking to look at behavioral health and say, hey, we can actually analyze the conversation, right? Let's talk about the elephant in the room, privacy and security and all that. This is very sensitive information. If you want to analyze this conversation, you need to be at a very, very high ball in terms of security and privacy. And I think, I'm not sure, I don't know, maybe if a behavioral health clinician would look at that problem, Analyzing the conversation and capturing the conversation wasn't the, the first solutions on their mind. But for us, the single source of truth in behavioral health is the conversation. Right. Like the unstructured data in behavioral health, that's the key. 
because the data is unstructured because you actually talk to someone. You don't measure um, their heart rate or their blood pressure. You don't have structured data in behavioral health. Well, you have little, but the vast majority is unstructured. So I think, yeah, this kind of agile thought process and out-of-the-box thought process helped us adjust and solve for this problem. Alan, as we close out, I always like to leave our listeners with some advice from lessons learned from other founders in the space. The behavioral health space is crowded now, as we as we talked about, but you must meet others who are still interested in, in, in solving the many problems that exist there. What advice do you have for other founders looking to break into behavioral health? Yeah, first of all, I'm really glad that behavioral health is a very crowded market right now. When we started almost you know, three years ago, it wasn't. When we went to talk to investors, behavioral health was probably on the bottom of the healthcare spaces that investor would invest in. I'm glad for that because we see, we see more solutions. I think in terms of um, maybe tips or insights we can provide from our perspective is you need to nail your ideal customer profile and you need to nail who are you solving problems to, right? And in healthcare, because you literally have five or six stakeholders for everything that you do, you need to be very focused. But you also need to have a financial ROI and a clinical ROI. You need to have both if you want to gain traction. And three is try and figure out how you can provide that value without getting stuck in super long sales cycle or super long integration. It's just a barrier in healthcare IT. Uh, it's how do you cross that chasm of EMRs integration, telehealth integration, revenue cycle management integrations, all that piece is really cumbersome. It takes a lot of time. And so try to think about your MVP, even without integration, just to see that there's enough value there, right? If your ideal customer profile is willing to invest the time and the money to solve their number one problem, even without the integration, think about the value you would bring with that integration when you will crack it. So I hope that will help. Alan Jaffe, CEO and founder of Elios. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com startups.